Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today we welcome John Kaplan, founder and president of Force Management. Without any questions and undisputed, the most influential sales training company in the world. In this episode, we understand the source of this power, where did it begin, how it evolved, and how he addressed the need. This is his playbook. series the 33 CXOs we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic, which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie Kune. Hey everyone. And it's an absolute honor and privilege to be joined by none other than Mr. John Kaplan. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys. How you doing? Very good. Thanks, John. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I've, uh, I've enjoyed the series so far. Great, great. Well, for our listeners, uh, John Kaplan and uh, Grant Wilson have built without question, undisputed, the most influential sales training organization in the world, force management. So John, can you just kind of tell us some of the brands and companies that you've worked with? Well, I'm sure we'll talk about some of them today because a lot of them are friends and family from the, uh, from the PTC days. Um, and uh, and then those folks have moved on into uh, you know most of the people you've had on this series have been uh, have been customers of ours. So um, we'll get we'll dive into it. We I'll tell you the beginnings and and some of those companies that helped launched us, and then some of the companies that we're you know dealing with today. It's a uh, it's we're really really blessed and fortunate to work with some of the most elite people and elite companies on the planet. Well, John, in this interview today, what we really want to understand is the source of that power. You know, where did it begin? How did it happen? How did it evolve? And how you address the need? And we're going to get to that in a moment. But actually, where I really want to start with is just take us right to the beginning, how you got into software sales, take us back to uh, to the start. Yeah, I mean, um, I was working for... Uh uh, Xerox corporation, um, had my head down and, and was, uh, you know, focused on, you know, trying to be a good young leader at, uh, at one of the best, uh, sales companies, uh, back in the day. And, 
and uh, I got contacted by a guy named Scott Rudy, <laughs> who is a, a dear friend of mine and, and a customer now. And and uh, in the recruitment process when he was at PTC, um, it was uh, it was an amazing amazing time because I wasn't looking for a change. I was a little you know, I was a little frustrated with some things and, and, uh, just struggling a little bit on some areas on, um, you know, on future of career and, and they just hit me right at the right time. And they did such a good job recruiting, which I'm sure you've heard, which was part of the secret sauce to be able to find people like me and others that you've interviewed. Um, Scott did a great job and, and, uh, it, the opportunity was so clear for me. Um, I had been with Xerox for 10 years and the opportunity was so clear with me, uh, for me that, um, you know, I, I was gone in two weeks. I gave a two week notice and, and, uh, you know, I, I made sure I did the, did it the right way or what have you, but I wasn't leaving Xerox. I was sprinting to PTC. <laughs> that's how, that's how unbelievable the opportunity was. Why was it such a good fit? Yeah. Well, so, uh, um, the product uh, was incredible. It's kind of like one of those moments in time where you you see something and you see a product, you see a product fit, you see a leadership team, um, you see an uh, an undeniable um, focus on execution and accountability, and it looked a lot more like me than where I was. And, uh, and, and that platform, it looked like could provide me an acceleration, uh, with addressable market. And, and, uh, uh, the more I dug into it, I really, man, I, I underestimated, I thought it was, I thought it was spectacular in my assessment of the company and i still underestimated it. It was really, really incredible. I mean, it was the fastest growing software company in the history of the planet. It went from zero to a billion dollars in less than 10 years. The stock split five times in seven years. Um, it's it was an unbelievable run. Yeah. And how quickly did you adapt to the new environment that you entered into? Man, it was <laughs> it was uh, adapting's uh, adapting's an interesting word. So you know, I was pretty high on myself. I was a college athlete, and and um, and I was I did really well at at Xerox, and you know, I was really confident in my skills. And uh, I went to PTC and, you know, I would tell you the first six months I was, uh, I was in uh, just in awe of the, uh, of the environment. So like everybody was an A player kind of reminded me, you know, when I went to Boise state was my, I, my freshman year, I played football for Boise state and, <clears throat> you know, you come out of high school, you show up and you're like, well, I'm fast, I'm strong. I'm, you know, I'm a good hitter. Um, and, and you go and you realize that everybody is fast and strong and a good hitter or what have you. And that was kind of my experience. There was just incredibly smart, talented, committed, uh, wise, uh, beyond their years, uh, people at PTC when I first got there. So, you know, was, I was, I had, took me a while, took me about six months to find my rhythm. And it was an interesting six months, you know, that first six months for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, you know, in the Navy SEALs, they call it ringing the bell. <laughs> and so you're, you know, the, you ring the bell and you're out. And a lot of people didn't make it their first six months. Mine was a little bit uh, crazier because they hired me to manage. 
So not only had I ever sold software, haven't sold software before, I wasn't an engineer, still am not. Um, I had never sold software. I didn't really understand manufacturing um, and uh, manufacturing solutions or what have you. And they hired me to be a manager. So I was managing sellers. And so not only did I have to learn the product, I had to learn the culture. I had to learn how to recruit. Um, I had to learn how to forecast. I had, it was almost like relearning everything. And I will tell you, it's probably the most intense and best six months of my entire life. It's like everybody needs that opportunity when you think you're really, really good and you have an opportunity that doesn't become catastrophic for you and your family to realize that you still have a lot to learn. And, um, and it worked out well for me. But the first six months, I didn't ring the bell, but I looked out the window and saw the bell a few times. What changed? How, how did the, the, the tide change for you, John? Actually, you, you interviewed one of my mentors, uh, a dear friend of mine today. I don't know if I wouldn't have called him a dear friend when I worked for him, <laughs> but John McMahon. Uh, in my first six months, he called me. And I remember it vividly. He called me and he said, hey, John, how you doing? And I'm like, I was struggling, man. I'm struggling to make my forecast. I'm struggling to recruit. I'm struggling to, you know, do the, just the basic stuff that you had to do as a leader there. And, um, and, he's, and he just, John is a, uh, you probably got it from your interview process or heard it from people. He's one of the best listeners that, that I've ever met in my life. Um, truly, truly one of the best business listeners for sure. Um, and so, you know, he listened to me and he's like, and, and he said, so, okay, so what's the problem? And I said, man, I, I just don't know, you know, I just don't know if I'm, you know, the guy for, you know, to, to, to do it your way or whatever. I can't remember exactly what my words were. And, uh, and he got a little bit uh, animated with me and he said, you know, we didn't hire you to, um, to be like us. We hired you to be you in our environment and then basically hung up the phone on me and uh <laughs> that was it was a really really incredible but basically what he was saying was look we already vetted you we understand what you we know what your potential is we know what you're capable of um we we believe that you can do it here it's on you now so go get it done and and i got off the phone i'm like oh, it really truly is on me and uh you know i had a really <clears throat> so the first you know i think i joined in april I finished my first kind of partial year, what have you. I turned it around. And then the next year, I was the number one district manager in the company. And, uh, and that, was a, that was it for me. I was on my way. And it was that probably that conversation with him is like, look, you got to trust the process, dude. Basically, what he was saying was, we already vetted you. Like, we drafted you. We vetted you. If you don't make it, it's on you. And um, that was really powerful for me. So how did you bring the two together then? So the, the environment that you're in with the environment that you're used to and, and make it your own at that stage. Well, for me, I had to go back to, you know, okay, so, okay, why did they hire me? And I, and I said, well, I'm really, really good at deals and selling. So Xerox was a great company that taught us the art of discovery, I'll call it. So how to understand customers' needs and problems and then solution map them so what ptc taught me how to do was a great solution and mapping them through those problems so i was kind of at mastery level at discovery and mastery level at well i thought mastery level at kind of qualification and running a deal or an opportunity and i was a good recruiter 
So for me, what I started to do is I went with my strength and I said, look, I'm going to help people on opportunities. I don't have to really be the smartest person in the room on the technology. We had really, really smart people like Kirk Colts and and uh, he was my application engineer and then application engineer manager. And my, and I mean, that dude was a beast. Like when you say um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do, he was actually a rocket scientist. <laughs> so, um, so I kind of, you know, <clears throat> stayed in my lane. I, um, I help people on opportunities. I help them get higher. Um, I was good at executive selling. I was good at value propositions. I was good at discovery. And so I helped my sellers there. And then what I did was I just went out and recruited a great team. And like what you heard me say in the beginning of this podcast, like we're the fastest growing software company on the history of, of the planet, a faster growth rate than Microsoft. We've gone from zero to a billion dollars in less than 10 years. The stock has split five times in seven years. That was my recruiting pitch. <clears throat> and it's a doggone good one. Like, when people hear that story, they're just like, oh my God, what is, what's, what's there? So getting people's attention from a recruitment perspective and want, and them wanting to join uh, PTC uh, was not, was not hard qualifying and making sure that they were the right people uh, to, to be at PTC um, was the, was really what I learned and what PTC taught me how to do. So I built a great team. Um, we got great deals. We got great deals. I built a great team. I understood how to uh, train and develop people. So we had great people like Ann Gary and and some other folks at, at uh, PTC with a great training and development program. They did a fantastic job. John, John and Dick and Mike and Paul and all the leaders of PTC understood that development was really, really powerful. So I developed at the same time, my people developed and they really had a good, a good methodology for that. So putting those two together, I did what my strengths were. And I brought that to the people that had, you know, really strong product knowledge. And, and we kind of put those together. And then we, we killed it. We took off and killed it. What extremes did you go to to recruit, John? Well, um, I mean, <laughs> I was kind of lucky in the beginning because I had just joined and I thought, what better way to recruit than to tell people my own story? So I told them the story about, you know, being in my office and the phone ringing. And originally it was like a recruiter on behalf of Scott Rudy and his team. And, um, and they kind of caught me at a, at the right time. Like, you know, I, I don't exactly remember what the circumstances were, but I never took any, um, I never took any of those calls from recruiters, you know, back in the day. I just, I didn't, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for your industry, but I, I just didn't. I was happy. I was focused. It was, I didn't want the distraction. I figured if there was an opportunity, I'd go get it myself or what have you. But so this, I would just tell people, I'm sitting there thinking that I understand the opportunity that's in front of me. And I described it as like being on a racetrack and I'm racing and I'm in the lead, man. Like I win all the races that I'm in and I'm way ahead. I got a big lead. And then all of a sudden, um, I can't remember what that movie is, but the movie with, um, oh shoot, I can't remember. He's in like on a television show and everybody's watching his life and he doesn't know he's in a television like show. The Truman Show. The oh, Truman, Truman Show. Truman. So all of a sudden, yeah. And so all of a sudden I'm Truman and I 
and I see like a little, a little curtain while I'm racing and the curtain, there's another track over there. And so I go and I look, I go off my track and I go and I look at this other track and people are flying around this track. And that's what it was like for me. So I had my head down, I looked up. And so I wasn't, when I recruited, I was like, I was never telling anybody, why are you staying there? That's a stupid place to be or what have you. I just described my own experience. You're racing on a track and then you realize that there's a faster track out there with better athletes and better competition and better uh, opportunities and bigger gold medals. And, um, you know, I, I just gave them, I gave them my own experience, you know, McMahon sitting down with me and telling me that, you know, you'll make three times the amount of money that you're making now. Now, some of the risk for you is you got to take this high salary you're getting at Xerox and we're going to cut it not in half, we're going to cut it by two thirds. And he said, if you're worried about salary and that kind of stuff, this is not the right place for you. If Because he, he called it a meritocracy and meritocracy is rewarding performance. And, you know, I kind of laugh at that today, but he, he didn't lie. Like he under, he undervalued the opportunity that I was, that I was. So, so my point is, sorry for taking so long to do it. I just spoke about my recruitment process because I had just come to the company. I thought, what a better way to explain to people what I just went through. And I wanted them to experience the same thing. And, and that's a lot of how I recruited. Because, because if, if, if you're not fired up and excited about the opportunity, why should anybody else be? And if you can't explain, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning and why this opportunity is a great opportunity for you personally. So that's why when I, I took that later on to all my managers, I'd, I'd grab them and I'd say, okay, why PTC? <clears throat> Go and make them stand up and tell me why PTC. And if they couldn't tell me with confidence and conviction, I'd make them go practice it. Because if you can't do that, then if you're not excited about what you do, then why would anybody else get excited? And then, Simon, I think some of the things you're talking about that we talked about in, when I first met you guys, I used to love recruiting. I loved it because I loved, you know, digging into people's stories. And I'd get off an airplane in the old days. You guys probably don't remember this, but you're too young. But we'd have these phone banks. So I'd get off the airplane and I'd walk into the, you know, walk out of the gate. And everybody gets off. In the old days, everybody got off the airplane and would walk right to their phone bank on the pay phones and call into their voicemail and get their voicemail. What I would do, I'd get my voicemail and then I'd just sit there and hang out. And there's other people like me that are on the phone banks and I'd listen to them. And there's people that are closing deals. There's people that are arguing about a forecast or whatever. And I literally did this. I'm not sure I ever, I, I definitely recruited some people. I'm not, I can't put a name on anybody that, that actually came to PTC, but my philosophy was pretty specific. I'd listen to them. I'd pretend like I was on the phone. Yeah, I was a creeper a little bit. I'm listening to their, their, uh, to their stories and what they're talking about. And then they get off the phone and I'd say, hey, my name's John Kaplan. I work for one of the fastest growing software companies on the history of the planet. Like that mantra, I, I did that all the time. I'd give him my card and I'd say, would you please give me a call? Because I'm sorry, I didn't mean to listen into your, your conversation, but you sound a lot like us and I think you'd kill it here. And so people normally would call me back. Now I had this thing called the rule of three. And the rule of three for me is no matter who I spoke to, even if they weren't a fit, 
And I figured out, you know, when I talked to them, they're not a fit in the first, you know, five minutes or whatever, I'd always get three names from them. And that's what really made me. And, and PTC taught me that. They taught me how to be a great recruiter. I was always getting names. Problem with people out there, they still do it today. They don't, they're not, act, they're not actively participating in their own rescue. So, like, we weren't really allowed to use recruiters. We, we had a recruitment uh, uh, firms and stuff that, but we were encouraged to participate in our own rescue and source for ourselves, for ourselves, and then use the professionals in your industry to really help us, you know, kind of, uh, you know, figure out that process and everything. But the sourcing of that, the best sourcing of that came from uh, the men and women that were leading teams. And it was expected too. So if you were, if you killed your number at PTC, but you didn't build a tree, what I called the tree, and you didn't build the tree that had a lot of branches of you brought this person in, you brought that person in. For example, Scott Rudy brought me. I never worked for Scott Rudy. I was supposed to work for Scott Rudy, but the company had other plans. They took me and planted me in. I was supposed to be in Grand Rapids, Michigan, working for Scott and McMahon plucked me and put me in North Carolina, in Charlotte, North Carolina. But he got credit for being a great recruiter. And there were people that didn't even report to people that came to the company that got recruited. And that's a big part of a secret sauce of unicorns, in my opinion, is that everybody understands the mission and you can't win without bringing on great talent and everybody's always recruiting. Even today, everybody's always got to be recruiting. Well, look, if force management ever doesn't work out for you, there's always a space for you here at SOAP, John. We'll welcome you on here. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do Let's it. Go. Let's do it. That's, uh, yeah. uh, so what was the result of that, John? Uh, the result of recruiting? Just generally what we're talking about there. You oh. know, secret source well, company. we had a great run. I mean, at PTC, I had a really, really great run. I... I worked with, you know, I don't want to leave out any names here on these. I always get leery about that. But Tim Caven's one of my favorite. And, you know, every time I got, every time I got promoted, he got promoted. And I, I was like, well, I, I think what they're actually doing is trying to figure out, you know, they're trying to, they were more interested in Tim than it. So I've said the guy below me kept getting promoted. So they kept having to move me up. And I went on to, uh, I went on to, 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 go into the international side of business. I went on to Frankfurt, Germany. I lived in Germany for about five years, uh, beginning running uh, Central Europe and then doing some other things in Europe and then getting involved in the operations side and then the international side of operations for both Europe and Asia. Um, and then Grant and I kind of came back together. We were working together when I was a district manager. He went off to Japan. I went off to Germany. Um, he came back. We started to run the operations of the company, uh, working for Paul Cunningham at the time. And that's when I really learned a lot about. So I was a pretty good sales leader and seller. Grant was phenomenal in operations, one of the best, op great seller too, for sure, great seller, but really, really great in operations. And that's where I learned a lot of the effectiveness things that it really takes to run a sales organization from a company perspective, an alignment perspective. And uh, so I was with uh, PTC, I, I think it was like eight, eight or nine years. And um, I, uh, I, was in, uh, I was in Europe. My father had passed away in 2001. 
it started to get me thinking about, I had been there for five years in Europe. I was supposed to be there for two. So that might give you an idea of my effectiveness. <laughs> I guess I was supposed to get that done in two years, but it took me about five years to do it. And I, I just wanted to come home. I wanted my kids to, um, I wanted my kids to go to high school and, you know, in middle school and high school in the United States. And they had a great experience. They're fluent. They went back to college in Europe at Mannheim University. Two of my kids did. And so uh, that was a great experience. But, you know, I, I wanted to come back home. And that was really the um, that was really the how force management got started is uh, just wanting to come home. PTC was fantastic and allowing me to come home and transition and grant transition. We transitioned at the same time. We were running global operations for the company and they were just wonderful to us. Um, and we made sure that we had our replacements in place and, you know, and that PTC is a customer of ours today. And, and, uh, but that's really how force management got started was uh, just the ability to come home and kind of started as a lifestyle. I thought it was going to be a lifestyle, replace our corporate income. And, and then it turned into a, a, a kind of a different scenario, which was, which has been really nice. So just to clarify, did, so did you go out with the intention of this being the next step or was it kind of a stepping stone or was it, this is what I'm really passionate about and this is what I want to do from here? So, Okay, so that's a good question. I'll, I'll tell the truth on how this happened. I was on an airplane and I was commuting at an office in London. I was living in Frankfurt and I had to be in London all week. And so I was commuting back and forth from London to Frankfurt. And I, I was on Lufthansa and I'm on the plane, the same plane, the same people on the plane. They're all commuting. We're all doing it every week. So we all, you know, I don't know these people, but, you know, you're nodding at people because you, you see them. And it's dark in the morning and the lights are on inside so you can kind of see your reflection in the window whatever and i look around the room i look around the plane and i'm like these people look awful like <laughs> no i'm serious i'm like these people are hating life like they they do not like their lives and i'm like god i hope i don't look like that and i happened to look out of the corner of my eye i was in the aisle and I looked out of the corner of my eye and I could see my reflection and I'm like, oh my God, I look like that. <laughs> and so this true story, I actually took out a napkin and I said, uh, one of those cocktail napkins, I got out a pen. I'm like, what's missing on this plane? And what was missing on the plane was passion. Right. And so I wrote down in a circle in the middle of the cocktail napkin, passion. I said, okay, what am I passionate about? And I started to write it down. Well, I'm passionate about my faith. I'm passionate about my wife. I'm passionate about my children. I'm passionate about my ability to create wealth. I'm passionate about my, my uh, biological family. You know, my mother, my father just passed away. So my mother and my brothers, and I'm passionate about my friends and my community. And then an old proverb, biblical proverb came to me. And there's a proverb in there. It says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And I'm like, what that meant to me was, I might say I'm passionate about all those things, but I'm not focused on any of those things right now. I'm more focused. I'm focused on the wealth creation piece. And so I dug into it even farther. I flipped the napkin over and I said, okay, wealth creation. Well, what am I really, really passionate about? And I was really passionate about coaching and developing people. I mean, I did it at PTC. I've, 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 I did it at Xerox. Um, I'm a former athlete, so I, I understand the importance of that. And I said, okay, well, what am I good at? 
of coaching and developing. And I just started and actually forced management was sketched out on a napkin on the back of Lufthansa. I landed and I called Grant Wilson and I said, and I even, it's force management. That's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's Kaplan. So it's forceful or, you know, and I'm like, no, that's not it. It was sales force. So force sellers. So people have thought like we're military, we're forceful or whatever. It actually came from just a sales force. And I called Grant and it was interesting because it's perfect storm. And Grant had just gone to the funeral of one of our good friends um, who had committed suicide. And so Grant was all upside down. I'm all upside down and I got to get back. I got to focus on my family and get back. So my dad, like my dad, you know, they talk about making a living and making a life. My dad knew how to make a life. He could have made a, and he did make really great living, but some things happened in my life where my dad focused on his family, <clears throat> me and my brothers and my mom. And so that was resonating for me. And he had just passed away. And I'm like, man, I got to go figure out how to make a life. And I was probably 40, 40 years old at the time. So the timing was just like the perfect storm. Grant was in a perfect storm. I was in a perfect storm. We had just sketched it out on the napkin. And I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm coming home, man. Help me get home and let's go do this thing. And that's what we did. So that's how force management got started 18 years ago. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, you know, really, really great story. So you've obviously got this fire in the belly. You're looking for your purpose. What happened next? You know, what, what, what was the process of developing your proposition? Well, I think PTC was a phenomenal springboard. Like, you know, I had no idea. Like when I was there, I knew we were good and I knew the company was good and I knew it was, uh, you know, respected and that kind of thing. But I didn't realize how good we were. And, and the way I realized that was, you know, thinking about some of the principles. So I know your, sit, your series has been on Medic, right? And so one of the amazing things about Medic is it's the most phenomenal qualification criteria, I think, in the history of business. And that's what it is, though. It is a qualification criteria. And so we were voracious qualifiers. Well, okay, but qualifying against what? So, okay, now we're thinking about force management and qualifying against what? Well, you, you're qualifying against a great need and a solution mapping to a great need. And so for, for medic, great qualification criteria, I want you to think of medic as like an x-ray. So you get an x-ray and I, I like this analogy because it's like an x-ray kind of highlights where you're sick or where the bones are broken. It doesn't necessarily tell you how to close the broken wound or how to fix the wound. So it tells me where my gaps are. So what we did at Force Management is we just kind of took it to the next level. And when we thought about what are some of the great things that we were able to do at PTC, and number one, we were able to position a product to a phenomenal need and an addressable market. We had a great focus on who our um, uh, ideal customers were and our ideal buyers were. And so what Grant and I just did was just operationalize that process of how do you communicate all of that to a customer? So we came up with our, our first offering was called Command of the Message. And Command of the Message is really about answering the four essential questions. What problems do you solve for your customers? How specifically do you solve them? 
How do you solve them differently or better than anybody else? And where have you done it before? We did that so well at PTC, but a lot of us were unconsciously competent and companies can't afford to be unconsciously competent. Like that has to be purposeful. The entire company has to be aligned behind it. So we saw a big area of opportunity there and we addressed that in the marketplace. And so that's kind of under the guise of when you see kind of those four quadrants of what we do, what force management does, we then took that and said, okay, well, how does that operationalize in the sales process? We came up with an offering called command of the sale and command of the sale is basically taking that value proposition, the answers to those four essential questions and making sure that the entire team is aligned behind those answers in the way that they operate. So we looked at companies and said, okay, well, what's your sales process? Every company on the planet could tell us what their sales process was. But when we looked at it, 99% of them couldn't tell us what the buying process was. So when we see a sales process today, we expect to see a buying process related to it. A sales process doesn't exist unless a buying process is in place. Because everything you do is to serve and solve that buying process. So there were so many challenges. Again, we did that stuff kind of naturally at PTC, but the rest of the world doesn't do that. And so we then looked at who's doing what when, by role, by stage, taking the medic qualification criteria and putting that in at the stage level. And we were just had great results on helping people accelerate deals, making sure the right resources are in the right place at the right time and getting people to kind of formalize that process and then be maniacally accountable to it um, is, you know, really kind of what took off in the marketplace on the right side of those uh, four quadrants is really, you know, the greatest leaders on the planet. They do two things really well. They have command of their plan and they have command of their talent. You look at any great organization, you look at any great leadership team, they can call the ball on their number. They're highly predictable. They know their business inside and out as if it were their business, and they bring great talent to a company. So we came up with two offers, offerings called Command of the Plan and Command of the Talent. What we found when we stepped back from that, they, these four quadrants are the exact reason why PTC crushed it and other elite companies like that crushed it. So we formalized it, operationalized it. And 18 years later, we're, we're killing it in the marketplace with it because it'll be 18 years after I'm gone and in the ground, it'll still be the four critical components of effectiveness for elite companies. That's, uh, you know, that's really, really uh, great insight there, John. Did I get some um, good plug in there for force management or what? Did. Yeah, you did. You, know, <laughs> you, you absolutely did. But the, 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 I think there's a lot of value there as well mm. in, in terms of, you know, these are really key components of what is common in elite companies. So just tell us a little bit more about what the elite companies are doing that others aren't doing so well. Well, I think right now, man, like when I said those four essential questions, what problems do you solve for your customers? How specifically do you solve them? How do you solve them differently or better than anybody else? And where have you done it before? No matter who you are in the world today, your customer has changed. COVID, one of the things about COVID 
and I don't want to minimize it in any way. I know there's a lot of different stories out there for people and, you know, personal stories and that kind of stuff. So I don't want to minimize it in any way. But what it did was everybody in the world, in the business world, everybody's boats went down in the harbor at the same time. So everybody in your value chain. So your customers change. I'm not saying that people didn't kill it during COVID. There's some companies that are killing it, you know. I don't know what the definition of killing it is, but we're doing really, really well during COVID. And I, I probably shouldn't be using that word. I don't mean to use that loosely, but doing really well. Um, when you look at it, it's because they got really, really close. They had an outside in mentality versus an inside out mentality. And, and so they made it about their customers before they made it about themselves. And so the answers to those four essential questions change and they've changed during COVID. So our customers, even if we had just done an engagement and helped them with the answers to those four essential questions, what we found was, it, you know, like in, you know, the 2019, because of COVID, the whole world changed, those answers changed. And what the most elite companies on the planet I think are doing right now is really, really getting close to that. So anybody listening, I would write those four essential questions up on a whiteboard right now. Get your executive team in a room, have them answer those questions on a piece of paper, but silently, privately. And for the technical founders and that kind of stuff, slow your roll. You go last when you give your answers, because if you give your answers, everybody's going to say, yeah, yeah, what he said or what she said. So what we find is that's a real simple exercise to do. And what you're going to find is there's massive disalignment. There's, there's, there's not alignment. So what you'll find is, okay, if we're struggling on the executive team answering those four essential questions right now, what are the men and women doing that are in the three-foot conversations that I call, that I like to call it the three-foot conversations with their customers? And if we're not aligned behind that, what are they doing? And so that is, we see elite companies doing that. And I call it an outside-in approach versus an inside-out approach. A lot of people went in COVID and said, let's hunker down, go in a cave, make ourselves safe, see if we got enough wood and enough stuff to eat, and we'll just emerge on the other end of this. I'm really, really proud because I think you talked to one of my good buddies, Carlos De La Torre, and he and his company, they did the exact opposite. In an industry, in an airline industry that everybody was running for the hills, everybody was going into a cave and just saying, we got to survive. We got to just hold on to each other and just survive. They came sprinting out of the cave and said, wait a second, our customers have changed not the customers themselves and who they were but what they're doing what they care about what they're struggling with they have changed and they capitalized on it we kind of benefited from that because they hired us but that's one of my favorite but that's one of my favorite stories because it was not easy for that company to do it they were in a they were in a big um a big carlos probably talked to you about it on the on the i i haven't in fairness, I don't want people to think I don't listen to yours, but I'm going right after him. You guys an hour ago or something, so I haven't seen his yet, but I'm sure he talked to you about the courage and conviction and the guts, but they were totally committed to put their customers' problems and challenges first. So, Simon, sorry, that was a long-winded answer, 
but it's the companies that get aligned behind those four essential questions right now are the ones who are doing really, really well. It's the character. How do you get aligned? Sorry. <laughs> we did it there. You asked the same question. Got you guys excited on this topic. Go ahead. We did. Simon, you ask it better. Uh, I, I was just going to say, what do you have to do to become aligned? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, you really got to check your ego at the door. You got to make it all about the customer. You then have to have some realistic conversations. So let's break those down. What problems do you solve for your customer? Most people aren't aligned about that because we could do this, we could do that, we could do this, we could do that. And in COVID times with limited resources for a lot of these companies, no, you can't do all that. Are you talking so about the, value, John, or are you yes. talking about service? What, what, when you say, what they're, do we do for our customers? What are you talking about? They're both. It's like, what problems do you solve for your customers? So what that makes you do is answer, what are the customer's biggest problems? And then you got to prioritize those. Well, yeah, this is a problem, but this is the biggest problem. Yeah, but we're really good at this. Okay, that's great that you're really good at this, but your customer is really struggling with this. And so you have to really focus, and again, outside in versus inside out. Okay, now, how specifically do we do that? All right, well, what goods and services do we have? And what do we have to do to our goods and services to actually solve that problem? Are we relevant for that problem? Okay, yes, we are. Okay, so what do we have to do to our products and services to really attach ourselves? There's an old saying that I say, he or she who attaches to the biggest business issue of the customer wins every time. Attach yourself to the biggest business issue of the customer. So that's an exercise you have to go through. What is the biggest business issue of the customer? Okay. How specifically do you do that with your goods and services? We talked about that. And then how do you do it differently or better? How are you going to uh, be different than the rest of the world? Not only how are you going to articulate it, but actually how are you going to operate? How is it going to function and provide value? It can't be like in the old days when people were competing against PTC. This actually happened to me one time. I had an executive say to me, hey, John, I love your product. I love your company. And I'm thinking we're going to sign the deal. So I'm sitting there all ready to go with the rep. And we're like, we're like, you know, going to have the champagne out or whatever. And the guy, the CEO of the company, a, manuf a mid-sized manufacturing company says to me, but we have a problem. And I'm like, okay. And I'm, I'm, I expect objections, right? So I'm like, okay. And he said, um, you have a blue screen versus a green screen. And I said, I thought he was kidding. So our graphical user interface was blue and the competitors that was the incumbent was green. And I, I, actually, I, I actually looked at him and I said, you're, yes, you're right. And he goes, well, that's a problem. And I said, well, why is that a problem? And he goes, because our people really, they're used to the green screen. And I almost lost my mind. But this, is, this really taught me a lot about differentiation. And I said, well... Mr. and Mrs. Customer, it is true that that screen, our screen is blue. And now a lot of reps would actually go back to their companies and say, hey, 
can we change our graphical user? Can we change our GUI to a green screen versus a blue screen? If you did that at PTC, you would have got shot in your head and you would have been dusted off to the curb if you did that. <laughs> well, luckily I grabbed myself and I said, hold it, this guy's talking about differentiation and he's talking about decision criteria for medic. And later on, I would call that required capabilities. And I knew that we had some very specific required capabilities. One of them was a change made anywhere was reflected anywhere in the process. A change made anywhere was reflected everywhere. So if we're working on uh, designs and we're manufacturing molds or what have you, at the same time I change the design, the same time the molds will update. So it was true end-to-end manufacturing with 100% accuracy. So I gathered myself and I said to him, I said, hey, I asked some discovery questions around design through manufacturing. Is that still the biggest concern that you have? Is a change made? And he goes, absolutely. And I said, okay, well, would you put that, would you put the blue, the green screen ahead of that? No, absolutely not. I said, okay. And I went through a couple of other three or four top differentiators. And where do you think that blue screen, or, or blue screen versus green screen wound up? At the bottom. At the bottom. And it was such, and today I've never forgotten it. So the message for me is, number one, you got to know your differentiators. Number two, you got to know what it does for the customer. So I guarantee you, my competitor, their last straw, their last card was the engineers that are using the product. They're going to freak out. And I want to tell them they're going to freak out about being a green screen versus a blue screen. And you heard from John McMahon earlier in your series, the engineers, many of the engineers, they didn't want to change because they weren't attached to the biggest business issue facing their company. And that's something that we really help them do in the industry. But knowing your differentiation, knowing the value that it creates for the customer, positioning it in the decision criteria, my Lord, like that is really kind of how it all came together for me. And then taking on force management, I didn't want people to just realize that in the moment and get lucky. I kind of felt like I got lucky. Like, you know, I was going to laugh at the CEO, not laugh at him, but laugh with him. And he wasn't laughing. And I could have lost on a differentiator that was not a differentiator. It was a difference, but it was not a differentiator. And that's really what we help companies do at force management is kind of take that to the next level of knowing what dif- what the difference is between a difference and a differentiator and going out and getting credit for it. That's what excellence is today. That's what companies have to do. And when you're in those meetings and you're sitting there talking about it, you got to have that eye. So, okay, that's a differentiator for us. And somebody will go, that doesn't, that doesn't resonate with our customers. Like, what do you mean? It's a difference. Like we're known for it. It's like, but it doesn't do anything for our customers. And that's what elite companies do. They have that dialogue and that give and take like that. That's what we see people doing today really, really effectively. Put those answers up there about, you know, when I get to after differentiation, I get there on the four sense of questions, you know, proof points. A lot of times people just give me a logo. Well, we do business with Coca-Cola. So what? What's the story? What happened at Coca-Cola? What was the business problem at Coca-Cola? How did your solution map to it better than anybody else? And what was the outcome? And so elite companies, they're telling stories today, true stories, all the way through the return on investment. 
instead of just we have this logo we have that logo we have this logo it doesn't matter so again i'm giving you long winded i'm kind of a long-winded guy sorry about that but that's what we see elite companies doing right now really well yeah john just remember people aren't here to hear us talk they're here to, to hear you so okay okay <laughs> okay as much as you need to so, so john obviously you know um it's all well and good the executive team now are bought into this amazing new focus right how do you then get the team to buy into that well it's a really really good question you got to do it a number of different ways you have to do it through leadership you got to recruit the right way um, i think one of the reasons why we did so well at ptc is that we realized that we were in a moment of time our leadership team helped us realize that there is a prize to be captured here they put out a they put together a plan that said if you do this we'll achieve this basically if you want to win a gold medal if you want to reach the summit of everest here's exactly what you have to do and they had a history of doing that over quarter over quarter you know ptc went 43 straight quarters of never missing their number to wall street that's over 10 years I'm not sure anybody will ever do that again. But when you're a part of that, you have a lot of trust for the management team that they're putting together a plan for you that's going to lead to victory because they kept doing it over and over and over again. So that was important. And then at the end of the day, um, yeah, you have to have the tools and processes in place. So you can't just, you know, like these four essential questions or whatever, you got to have great, you have to hire well for people to look at that and go, okay, I trust it and I trust the process. I'm going to go execute against it. If it doesn't work, I'm coming back and telling the company it doesn't work. So I've got a mechanism in place to do that. But I hired the right way that people are maniacally loyal to trusting the process because the process has proved itself um and then putting the right tools and you know like what we did at ptc and what other companies do is that you don't do training and stuff like that you commit the company to transformation you you change the mindset the tools and the processes and you start looking at tools and you start saying if this tool doesn't lead to this mission get rid of it and you're very very the company is very very loyal to the sellers and the selling function because they're not burdening them with things like at PTC in engineering, there's a term called wasted heat and wasted heat is when you either over engineer something or you under engineer something, you have friction and that kind of stuff. And PTC was constantly looking for that wasted heat and getting rid of it, being loyal to the sales organization and say, if I'm not going to ask you about this, get rid of it. If I'm not going to ask you about this field, and it was before the Salesforce.com days, but if I'm not going to ask you about this in Salesforce, get rid of it. And, and so bringing that all together, and at the end of the day, when you recruit well, you have a, at the individual level, it's you in the mirror where you say, okay, I know that I'm in a moment of time. I know that I have a great process in front of me because it's proving to do all this great stuff all around me. At the end of the day, it's me and you, and I'm looking in the mirror. It's me and you, and I have to account to it with a maniacal focus on execution. You put those three things together, and any company can kill it. Tell, tell us about operating rhythm. 
Yeah. So it's really good because like, and, and I want to make sure that when I'm saying all this stuff, it's not just the sales organization. The entire company has to have a cadence and a rhythm. You know, in the United States, we have a, um, we have a, uh, a team here that wins a lot of championships. They're called in foot in American football. It's called the new England Patriots. You walk into their, um, and I'm not a huge hand. I mean, like I'm a Detroit Lion. From, I'm originally from Detroit, and I'm now down in Charlotte. But I can't talk about those teams in the same <laughs> light as I can talk about, like, I don't know if it's Manchester United or or uh, uh, whatever you got in the Bundesliga or whatever you guys got going there. It's like, it's the same thing. Whoever the perennial winners are, this is the same. It'll translate all over the world. But when you walk in in New England Patriots, they have something on the door that says, do your job. And Belichick, who's the leader, that's the big mantra of his, do your job. Well, that's at the individual level, but it doesn't just mean you do your job. It means that if you do your job, then the system will work. If you do your job, then the ecosystem will work. And that's, that's what happens from an execution perspective and an operations perspective when a management operation, a management operating rhythm comes where you're like, okay, what's the cadence? Now, on a Sunday when the New England Patriots play, they walk into the locker room, and, and I actually saw some, and I can relate to this too. Like, one of the things I loved about athletics is it was structured. Like, I was an individual personality for sure, and probably a little bit more individual than I needed to be to be a great team player, but that's kind of common. But I do miss walking in, for me, it was Saturdays because it was a college. But there was a whiteboard and it had it, it told you where you needed to be. So at, you know, 730, we're going to eat breakfast or whatever. At, you know, 10, we're going to get taped. At 11, we're going to go and go out on the field. Then the, these people are going to go out first and then these people are going to go out first. And so there's an operating rhythm that says if we follow this, it's going to lead to victory. So let me break it down to like business terms now. Well, operating rhythms are typically around things like how are we going to look at territories how are we going to look at op accounts how are we going to look at um opportunities and having an operating rhythm and a cadence who's doing what when and what's the cadence well we're going to do this on a weekly basis we're going to do this forecasting and this way on an x basis and then it's the process and it's like that's why people go and take less money in the nfl to go play for the new england patriots because of that operating rhythm that operating rhythm leads to success and what i love about it is i walk in like to a lot of companies and i say hey walk me through your operating rhythm they walk me through the operating rhythm and i'm like i know they're not winning championships so i'm saying if i go get a team member and I share with them the operating rhythm. This is what you say you do, what's working and what's not working. So what the most elite teams are doing right now, Simon, is they're looking at their operating rhythms. And they're like, this is absolutely leading to success. Keep it going. This one, it, it doesn't appear to be, get rid of it. If we need to add a new one, they're constantly looking at their operating rhythms. And really what it does is it creates a cadence for the masses. You know, I like to go in on Saturdays and just know, you know what? I know I have to perform. I know I have to be at my best. But when I looked up, it was like, okay, everybody's looking at the same operating rhythm. We all got to do our own 
things that we need to do to prepare for that operating rhythm. And we won championships at Boise State is one of the greatest football programs on the planet today. They're just in a funky part of the country and they, you know, they're, but they're a really well-known team. And then I went to Bowling Green. I finished up, I transferred, I finished up at Bowling Green and we were 20th in the nation my senior year, 11 and 0. And when I go back and I, I look at that, I'm like, I benefited from and then PTC and Xerox, I benefited from being in an operating rhythm that I trusted because it led to great results. I really want to encourage you for your listeners, everybody listening, when you look at that operating rhythm, if you're not, if you're not winning championships, you go back and look at that operating rhythm. You say, what's contributing to our championships and what's getting in the way of it? Get rid of the stuff that's not working. Well, it's always the way that we've done it. We've done forecasting at XYZ time or whatever. Well, it ain't working now. Readdress it. And I think what happens to the A players is, is they look at the operating rhythm. And if you're not winning championships and you don't trust the rhythm, you don't trust the process, that's how you lose A players. They leave. John talked about it uh, in his podcast with you. A players can't stand mediocrity can't stand it why do you they think, hate it yeah why do you think people aren't addressing those parts of the business or process or operating rhythm that's not that's a that's a really good question ali because i want to give people credit you know i want to just give people a break a little bit you know this year is a mother this year is a mother that translates to it's a difficult year man like you know, you might have people that you know, like most of the people listening to this, they know somebody that got sick. And, and there's a huge percentage of population maybe that knows somebody who knows somebody that's passed away. So like, it's heavy, man. And okay, then we've got lockdowns and we've got all this stuff that's, so we're all getting impacted by it. So we have a lot of noise out there. And I think great leadership teams, Ali, what they do is they help minimize the noise. Let me get your attention. Let me get you focused. Let me get you in a structure that's going to lead to a great outcome. And actually, I'm going to shelter you from the noise with the structure. I, I actually love structure when it shelters you from the noise. But Ali, you asked a different question. You asked, why doesn't everybody do it? Sometimes it's right in front of your face, Ali. And, and you just, it's not that you don't know it or understand it. But you need somebody like us or other companies that do what we do to help you kind of do this and put it in front of you, just like your parents used to do. You know, you're, you, you got all this stuff going on and your mom and dad pick out, you know, one thing or your boss does today. They pick out all the 17 things I'm worried about. They pick out the one thing that if I just focused on that, I could probably have a great outcome for my problem. It's just a focus thing. And it's hard to focus when the world around you is experiencing chaos. And so the things we've talked about today, now more than ever, I think you got to do these things because they're just not naturally going to occur, especially in difficult times. They are the things that everybody starts to think about later when you should be thinking about them right now. So again, I don't think it's rocket science. I just think it's focus. Yeah. How, how do you know if, the problem is the people, the process, or the training. Yeah. Well, well, we have, you know, if you look at, uh, I think we might have shared with you assessing the sales organization. 
what I like to do is I like to just look at the sales organization. I already told you about the four essential questions. I like to look at sales process and ask myself some essential questions in each one of those areas. And I can tell you exactly where the problem is. I can tell you whether it's a company problem. I can tell you whether it's an individual problem. I can tell you whether it's a product problem. I can tell you whether it's a customer focus problem. Uh, and I think it's just getting a simple way to assess it. So the, I'll give you some examples. So like I gave you the four essential questions on sales messaging on sales process. Does your sales process align to your customer's buying process? Like simple, just show it to me and let's look. And if it doesn't, what bad things are going to happen? And so I can begin to see whether that's a corporate alignment problem. Okay. Let's say it does. Okay. Then I look down at the next thing and I say, okay, who's doing what, when, and if I see that's in place, who's doing what, when, then I see, okay, let me see who's doing it. So now I dig into the individual level and I see how we're measuring what they're doing. And now I can begin to see, okay, I've got a great plan. I've got a great process. We're not executing. When I'm talking about doing the things we're doing, I can zero in at the individual level and see it's like watching game film uh, for athletics. I call it the eye in the sky doesn't lie. Well, now I can watch the individual in that sales process and know exactly whether or not, is it a training problem? Are they not doing it because they don't understand it? No problem. I can train them on that. Are they not doing it because they don't believe? I call it skill will. Is it a skill problem or is it a will problem? If it's a skill problem, giddy up. Let's go. We can help them with that. I'm not going to help them forever. So if they can't acquire the skill. Not everybody can acquire the skill, but if they can acquire the skill, let's keep going. Let's train them. If they can't acquire the skill, then th there's a better place for them somewhere else. Doesn't make them a bad person. But then if there's a, it's a will problem, it's a behavior problem. I'm really digging in there. I see it a lot, especially right now during these times, there might just be stuff going on for people. I see the processes in place. I see all this other stuff is in place and we've got individuals that aren't performing. I can dig in there. I, I think in my mind, I call it the skill will principle. Is it a skill or a will issue? If it's a will issue, I can dig in very specifically. There's different aspects on the skill will model. We'll share that with you, but I can go in very specifically and tell whether or not it's a company problem, a training problem or a people problem or a process problem. And you constantly got to be doing that. The leader constantly has to be doing that as part of their operating rhythm. John, have you ever not gone in, have you ever gone into a company and not been able to fix a problem? Yeah. Right. Yeah. A um, couple different reasons why. Um, sometimes um, people just don't want to be honest with themselves. They, they, um, and, and we can't help them. So, when we can't help companies, here's why. It's like if we're a threat for some way. So some, a lot of times we'll get brought in by board members because we have a great reputation. Some investment houses have made, you know, really good money with us and we've made really good money with them and the performance in these accounts. So they'll bring us in. And if we don't do that properly, sometimes we look like a threat. They'll be like, well, why do we need this company? We have people inside our company that can do what they do. And, and so we have to do that. But that's not really the question that you're asking. It's like, you know, what is it about some companies that that can thrive with what we're talking about and where do they struggle?
I think a lot of times it's up at the top, especially in some of our startup companies that we work on, and I call it like the crazy founder syndrome. And sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not being rude, but I called the crazy founder syndrome because I actually called myself that when we were starting force management, that, you know, I was the crazy founder and Grant, we were the crazy founder. We had ideas and we got frustrated when nobody else could do it. And it's just exactly what we're teaching other companies now. But um, when you're just not honest with yourself about what you're good at as a company and what you're not good at as a company, um, when you're, um, when you got a bad culture, um, and we see that sometimes where you just have a bad culture and they talk about, you know, I don't know what that saying is, but when a fish starts to stink, it, it, it rots from the top. I don't know what the saying is. It translates in all the different, it's, it's, it rots from the head. I think it the, rots from the head, man. And head. so like a lot of times we'll be looking, it's just a bad culture and it doesn't matter how great we can be with those individuals inside that company. That culture is smelly. And it's because of at the top. And what we wind up doing is, um, you know, we do our best to try to help people, but we probably will, you know, professionally bow out in some way. We're too busy or, or what have you. But And when the culture's not aligned. So when you're a leadership team and you're not aligned and you don't want to be aligned, and we get into these workshops where you have to have alignment around these four essential questions, but we don't have a leader who's responsible for what I call calling the ball, the designated adult in the room. You got a lot of these teams that are like, and this has come up in the last 10 years or so for me, 10, 15 years or so. We want to kind of manage by consensus and that. And I'm all for that. I think it's, I, I don't like dictators. I don't like, but at the end of the day, you have to have somebody who's responsible for calling the ball. And I call them the designated adult. And when I walk into organizations and they don't have a designated adult or designated adults and they're just, and they can't, you know, the, the inmates are running the asylum and there's a lot of that going on there right out, out there right now. Those problems don't typically fix themselves. Um, uh, other things, you know, when people struggle as they, you know, and some of the answers to the four essential questions that we have, they just got a long way to go in their product. Like they do not have a solution that fits that problem. And they're trying to make that solution fit that problem. And so they're trying to, they take it like the carpenter, they saw this off or they add this epoxy or what have you, and they try to stick it back in and, and it's just not solving the problem. Uh, again, the answers are in those four mm -hmm. quadrants. When you have good alignment around those four quadrants, we yeah. believe you're going to make it and make it at an elite level. When you don't, you got to close it. But if you don't have a good product, uh, it's hard to close the gap. Yeah. I think you've answered this question in a lot of, a lot of the questions that we've asked you separately. But I think going back to the, the 33 CXOs that we're talking about in this podcast, um, why, do you think it, why do you think that all of those individuals have gone on to become so successful? Obviously, putting aside the fact that most of them have employed force management, but no, on, on a serious note, what, what, what is it that they've, they've done and, and, and why they're so special? Once you're a part of a championship team, it's very hard to go backwards. People do it, but they don't do it willingly. Once you're around A players, 
once you're around great products, once you're around great leaders, once you're around great cultures, it's very difficult to say to yourself, I'm going to sacrifice that and I'm going to take more money for less of one of those things that I just said. Like, I, I would never do that. And they would never do that. So that culture and that performance was so spectacular. And yeah, we were lucky, man. The right place at the right time, but we worked hard. But once you do that, you're not going to go into something that you can't, you know, you're always trying to build it better. That's what we tried to do at, at force management. We didn't want to try to do another PTC. If it was possible, we wanted to do something greater than PTC. And I'm not saying we've done that, but that was our mentality. And when you talk, when you look at those individuals, those 33 people that you're interviewing, they all have that in common. I think John said it really well. A players can't stand mediocrity. And so what happens is when you look in the mirror and you're not involved with an A player scenario, not just at the person perspective, at the culture perspective, the product perspective, the industry perspective, all of those things we've talked about today. Mm. You have a tough time. Once you get a bite of that apple, you got a tough time eating something else. Yeah. And some people do, and I don't judge anybody, but most of those people that I went to war with, you know, 15 years ago or what have you, we're all kind of built the same way. Once you get it, and, and because a lot of that came from your response to that came from within. So you have a visceral emotional connection to that performance and to that legacy. Um, who wants to go back? Mm. Who wants to go backwards? Like I don't. And, and I would bet that the majority of the, if not all of the individuals you've talked to or are going to talk to, they all feel the same way. We don't want to be somebody that performed and created legacy in that environment and then, you know, gets known as, well, those guys are the PTC guys and they had their heyday and they couldn't do anything else. Like nothing could be farther from the truth when you look at, I don't know if you've done this, you take a look at the market capitalization of former employees of that company and what they've gone off and done. I don't know what the number is. It could be like 300 billion or something like that. It's, but it, I saw somebody do it one time uh, at one of our reunions that we had. It's shocking. It's astonishing. And it's, yeah, they were great people, great individuals, great quality individuals, but they were a part of something that gave us a taste of the apple. And I'm not saying being greedy and it's all got to be about money, but when you're like in that moment in time, you try to keep yourself as close to that moment in time in the future. Yeah, as possible. I don't know if that's a, it explains it, but no, it does. It does, and it's interesting. I think we we done the statistics on the thirty three that we've spoken about, and it represents four percent of the total turnover globally in software sales. So that's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I, just one more question. Sorry, Simon. We just we're we're going to be arguing over who's going to ask the next <laughs> question now. <laughs> um, but, I figured you dudes would be looking at your watch right now. How no, do we get this dude off the... We're trying to keep you on this, um, on this podcast as long as we can. But no, on, on a serious note, um, we are doing a follow-up series, which is to look at the second generation. So this is the generation that has then come um, been 
the, you know, being involved with one of the 33 or somebody that has been touched by a McMahon PTC playbook. Um, That's great. Do you notice any difference? So I suppose the people we're talking about, the likes of Palmer Paul, who's now the CRO at Datadog, his ex-Jeremy Duggan, um, Luke Rogers, again, another Jeremy Duggan um, disciple. But you know, do yeah. you see any difference in this next line and generation of, of CROs? That's, that's what's amazing to me. That's what's amazing to me is I see very little difference. Um, you know, John was interesting to me. John McMahon was interesting to me. So when I got my international assignment, I walked into Tokyo, Japan, and I actually had people quote to me through a translator, a John McMahon quote. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And John was gone. John had already left the company. And um, I remember going back to my hotel room and go and saying to myself, that's unbelievable. Like, and the way that they said it, like we were talking about forecast or something, it was something that I don't know. I, I don't know if this is attributed to John or whatever, but it's like the excuse department is closed or like we had a lot of great sayings at PTC. <laughs> well, that was one of my favorites. The excuse department is closed. But the fact that people who'd never met John McMahon or Dick Harrison or Mike McGinnis or Paul Cunningham or Grant Wilson or go through the 33 of the people. It's like that's those are and you think about some of the great um, cultures and tribes around the world and the way that stories get passed down. And so my, I'm, my father's a Lithuanian. My father, God rest his soul, he's a Lithuanian Jew and my mother's Irish Catholic. And one of the wonderful things I love about my father's culture is the way that those stories like have been passed down for generations for thousands of years and like not only just passed down but by the word has been passed down and so i i don't mean to get too dramatic but that's a lot like what the ptc culture was long after john mcmahon was gone long after dick harrison and steve walski and these people were gone some of those basic principles around being a voracious qualifier uh you know being a great recruiter uh, being a great uh, at discovery and aligning what you do to make it relevant, highly differentiated against your competition, those got passed down through generations. And I would venture to say the Jeremy Duggins of the world and the people like they took it to another level. Okay, but it's they'll say, yeah, but it's not. And I wasn't, I didn't come in when John came in. I came in after John and I worked for John. And so John and Dick and Steve and they were part of this original and some of your 33 are part of some of this original, some of the first employees. So I was kind of second generation, if you will. But what I loved about it is like the Jeremy's of the world and the Tim Cavins of the world and the, you know, other people that, that, that I worked with, like they brought it to their own level. So you take that culture but you have this, like what John McMahon told me, said, I didn't hire you to be like us. I hired you to be like you in us, in our culture. And I never forgot it. So now you get these great leaders, these great principles in the, in the present day culture, and then they execute. So that second generation, I'm really looking forward to that series because mm -hmm. they took it to a, another level. And don't just look at stock price or that kind of stuff. Look at because it won't be the same, right? It was a moment of time. There was market dynamics, competition, and that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about leadership, like 
some of those next generation leaders were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have the benefit of being able to pick up the phone and call John because he was gone. And uh, but so they had to kind of figure it out themselves in their in their own way of this new culture and what they, what they've done and what they've taken from that and now taken to other companies. I think where you really see it is in the tree that I talked about. Those things got passed down in the tree. You could tell who worked for certain people. This person hired this person, hired this person, this person hired this person. In the NFL, you know, that's highly valued because then when you change teams or whatever, you can put together your coaching staff. And if you have a big family tree, you can easily put together your coaching staff. It's the same thing here. Look at these companies. Yeah. Look at where the Carloses have gone, the Jeffs have gone, the um, Jeremys have gone. Look at their tree at yeah. these new companies. A lot of it's their tree. Now, I don't want to give people the impression that we were an elitist, uh, no, no ideas from the outside, because my story was exactly that. I was from the outside. They hired me to lead people, and I had never sold software for them. So they weren't elitist on, okay, we're not going to let anybody do that. They brought me in from the outside, and they taught me how to thrive. And I think that's what the, this next generation of leaders did and what they've done out in the marketplace, and they're still doing it. Because a lot of the old guys, right? And they're not old. McMahon looks freaking younger than me right now. But, you know, they're like the, the next generation. They're killing yeah. it out in the marketplace. Oh, it is. And, you know, we had an amazing interview of a guy called Luke Rogers, who's now taken on as the new CRO of Insta um, base. And he's 33. And yeah. what he has achieved in his life is just incredible. But he epitomized he just took the playbook and he just executed it to the word. He put his artistry on it, but he just dedicated his life. And whose family tree is Luke from? Jeremy Duggan. Okay, so that's, that's it. Exactly. And Jeremy's family tree is John McMahon and, and exactly. others. And, and, but yeah. he's now Legit. 33 to get to that level and to, to achieve what he's achieved. It just goes to show. Which tells you a lot about the playbook, actually. So people can come and go. People can come and go. If somebody can pick up a playbook and win, that tells you that playbook was pretty good. And this is why this podcast makes it so special for us, because the more we can kind of get behind this and kind of showcase the success stories that are out there, the more that it amplifies the, Love the success it. of this process. So, um, Love it. I like how you guys did this, Simon. Sorry, I, I know you got a comment, but you know, I, I, I would, we would be remiss if we said like, hey, if you weren't part of the, the PTC, then you can't do this. Like, then you're not in the in crowd or whatever. That's pretty lame. And, you know, I hope nobody's listening to this. It's like, well, if I wasn't, if I'm not part of the tree, then I can't, you know, then I can't, then I, you know, this isn't relevant for me or whatever. It's not, yeah, the tree was powerful, but the playbook that came from the tree is still, it'll be, it'll be the same playbook, different products and services, different environments and that kind of stuff. But these principles of the playbook, they'll be around after I retire, after the next generation retires, they, they are long generational lasting, my opinion. Yeah. Sorry, I, I Simon. Think- no, I, I think that the ice, you know, the recruitment piece is really important here, right? Because I think the ice criteria where experience is the last criteria is probably what's allowed for this to continue to grow with new ideas and new concepts and fresh blood coming through. And as long as they're made of the right stuff, 
This is absolutely for anyone because the playbook is absolutely inclusive as long as you are excellent. And you yeah, and you guys had a great conversation with John McMahon. A few, I, I, I watched it a few weeks ago. I don't know when you recorded it, but um, John talked about that, and he talked about the importance and some of the ingredients that will be generationally. He talked about smart people, and there's there's book smart, there's street smart. Um, you got to have you you got to have both. Um, he talked about a. Um, intellectual if he didn't i would have expected him to talk about intellectual curiosity um great listening um uh, people that just hate to fail um they want to be part of a you know part of a special team and they want to they want to like a meritoc so there are principles of the people simon that you're talking about that are going, that's generational. That's going to be conversations that when your children are watching this podcast and they're taking over and doing your podcast after you guys get so famous, they're going to be talking to great leaders then. And those are going to be the same principles. And I've added a few things like what I've learned over the years for me, time management versus energy management. This is really important concept for me today. And I hope it resonates for you and your listeners is like for me, it's about energy management. Like I wake up in the morning and I believe that what I do for a living, not only does it matter, but I believe that I am the luckiest dude on the, on the planet. I believe I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And so what that means is, is my natural resting state is around the topics and things that I do. If I could change anything over the last 25 years and I do it with my children now, I talk about kind of natural resting states. Where's your natural resting state? What gives you energy and what takes away energy? And I saw it at PTC where people got really competitive and they're like, no, I can do this. And it's like, hey, it's not about whether you can do it or not. It's whether or not it's a natural resting state for you. And I'm trying to give you insight into recruiting. I know I don't have to do this for you, but for your listeners, this is really big for me. I just had a conversation. We were recruiting somebody yesterday to our company. And I talked about a natural resting state and we were discussing whether or not what we were going to ask this person to do would give them energy or would it take energy from them? And it doesn't mean people can't do it. Like people say, no, 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 I can do it. I can do it. They want to prove it to you. I saw this a lot at PTC. They're like, yeah, I can do it. And then they wound up killing themselves, not literally, but almost. And it's like, if it doesn't give you energy, because energy is renewable, it's sustainable, time is not. And so that is kind of from my PTC days, what I've learned now and what I'm going to, I tell my children the same thing. You get involved in stuff that gives you energy and it's like renewable. You can do it forever. That's why when you look at people like a John McMahon or have you, like, you know, you can tell I'm not, I get in big trouble if I told you John McMahon's age, but I guarantee you could put him in any carnival any carnival around does that translate do you guys have circuses and carnivals and guess my age or whatever you'd lose <laughs> and it's because he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing in his mind and and um so i would just encourage people to really do that don't fool yourself and say oh i want to be a part of this and i can do it and it sucks the energy out of you you do it and you do it performance wise well but you'll never do it in a sustainable fashion. And unfortunately, 
there was a lot of people in my career that I kind of worked with that I really wasn't honest with myself about that. And I burned them up. I burned them up and they, they flamed out. And um, so that is one of the caveats that we really haven't talked about today is like, you can chase this apple, uh, but make sure you really understand. My father and mother used to tell me, um, be careful what you ask for. Um, and I really understand what that means now. Um, make sure that you're in a situation that gives you energy and doesn't suck it out of you. Yeah. Amazing. Do you think PTC or Blade Logic will ever happen again? Ah, I didn't even get to tell that story, did I, about Blade Logic and the. Okay, we'll have to do that in another one. We'll have to do it on another one. But, you know, the, that's kind of how we started. After John left, you know, he hired us. He was at a couple of other places, but he hired us at Blade Logic and Mark Cranny hired us at, at Opsware. And that's kind of how we got our name at, at Force Management is Blade got bought for a billion dollars. Opsware got bought for a billion dollars by HP. Blade got bought by uh, BMC. And then we went to BMC with John and, and uh, Dave Echiria and Dave went from BMC and then he went to MongoDB and we got hired over there. And then Dave went into the investment community and got us a really, really good name in the investment community. So I'm sorry, I, I wanted to give credit where credit was due as far as how force management kind of became force management. But back to your question, do I, do I believe that a, another PTC or Blade Logic? of course I believe it. I absolutely believe it because what I've said to you does not rest on an individual. It that is, does not rest on a personality. It, that, it, it rests on basic principles. Um, now, a moment in time, <clears throat> they're rare, and that's why you call them unicorns. A moment in time, a leadership team that does a great job of getting people emotionally committed to the journey. It's going to suck. It's going to be hard. But if you can embrace the suck and you can get to the summit, like, can you picture yourself at the summit? And that's how they recruited me away from Xerox to PTC. I bought into that. And then the third piece of, of unicorns that I see is that they hire people with that individual makeup that look in the mirror and either love what they see or can't stand what they see and they remediate it. And so... Is that complicated to replicate? I don't know, but it's not complicated for me to understand. So if I can explain it, it can be done. So I do believe that, you know, we will see another PTC uh, again. We will see, uh, continually see unicorns, but mostly it's because people see those three things. They realize there's a moment of time. We have to lead. We have to point out where this journey is going to take you. And people are going to say, the journey, the gold medal is so much greater than the suck of getting there. <laughs> I'm not using the right words, but that, that's what great leadership teams do. And then they hire people that have that individual component that says, like, I want to be so loyal, like a Scott Rudy that continues to recruit me, even though John McMahon tells him that you're not going to manage him. He was so loyal to the cause of bringing in good people to the company, regardless of not whether they work for him. He wanted me to work for him, but it, like at that individual kind of accountability level, that's hiring. And so, yeah, I do believe it can be done. We always ask this question. It's one of our final second to last questions that we ask. 
Um, and you spoke about it, you know, early on in the, in the interview, um, which is, you know, spe- you know, finding time outside of work, especially for your family, especially for the people around you. Um, it's important to switch off. How do you switch off, John? What's, what, what takes you away from work? Well, you're actually looking at somebody that, you know, has had problems over his life of um, not doing that very well in the past. And I've suffered from it. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Like, you know, I've, I've fallen on my face before in life uh, without realizing how important that is. What you're, what you're speaking about is balance. And people can talk about it. And not everybody's honest about it. But, you know, the healthiest people on the planet, the, the people that are most balanced on the planet, uh, they actually, and successful, when I really look into it, they have this concept that I, that I call flow. <laughs> they, it, it, it is a state of being that where you lose yourself. Some of people can get it in work. So some people, can you imagine where you have that flow state where you absolutely lose yourself you get great satisfaction from it. It fuels your energy. It gives you energy. Um, and you do it for a living. Mm. Holy smokes. <laughs> like, those are the smartest people on the planet. Mm. So, now, I've had to learn this the hard way. You know, I've gotten in trouble before with, you know, stress and that kind of stuff. And, and I was introduced to this concept of flow. And I'll tell you, like, for me, uh, I love... And, and, and by the way, it also challenges the brain. So it's got to be learning something new. So I'll just make it short. Like uh, three years ago, four years ago, I always wanted to be a drummer, man. Like in, in you know, I played the song flute as, as a kid and that kind of stuff. And I always talk about, I play the air drums. My kids drive me, you know, my kids are all grown now. But my children three years ago brought, bought me a set of drums. And I lost my mind. Like, and and because they knew I always wanted to do it, and I probably wouldn't spend the money on it, and whatever. So they bought me a set of drums, and I I I went in all in, like, and I learned, and I had to learn how to hold the, you know, how to hold the sticks. I'm not a great drummer today, but let me give you an example of what flow does. What flow does for me is I go into my room where I have my drums, and I can disappear for three or four hours and feel like it was 20 minutes. And it's challenging. So the brain gets challenged and I'm learning new things and trying to create mastery. I'm not mastery. I'm junior apprentice right now. And another example for me is five years ago, um, I took up fishing. And anybody that knows me knows that I go all in, man. Like when I start learning something, and I go all in and people get mad at me. John goes out with me and, and, and he gets mad because like we don't, I tell him, we got the whole ocean. Go to the bathroom in the ocean. Pee in the ocean. He always wants me to go back to the dock and use the bathroom. I'm like, no. And we've been out there for like eight hours. And I feel like we've been out there for like two hours. And he's like, hey, John, you know, are we going to eat today? Or And so anyways, we those two things for me and the concept of that. So I, I like to look for things that I want to learn that are going to be hard. But when I do them and I'm pursuing them, I lose myself in them. And I have noticed that, you know, stress, anxiety, worry, health, sleep, all of those things, when I'm in and pursuing those flow states, um, I think that's where, where great lives happen. That's where a great life happens. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to get philosophical on you, but I actually spend a lot of time talking to people about that today because I can tell people, like I can give you some specific examples of where Kaplan fell on his face. And uh, if I had to do over again, I wish I knew what that was when I was, you know, 25 years old. Yeah, I've just just finished listening to a book called Stealing Fire, which talks exactly about this, which is obviously getting in a state of flow. Is that a good one? It's really good. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you. I've heard of it before and now I'm going to get it. it. It gets a little bit wild because it kind of looks into kind of microdosing and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a very, very powerful book. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah I'll definitely recommend anybody listening or reading. Awesome. That. I'm on it. So the final question we asked, John, is does the hunter make the unicorn? Mm. Yeah, I've heard you ask that question. Does the hunter make the unicorn? Um, and I would say, I would say it depends. But a lot of the things that we were talking about is it, it really revolves around that tree and the seeds of the tree, the planting of the tree. Um, but without the, you know, the, if a hunter knows how to hunt, Let's just put it a different way. Um, maybe you can link this to uh, in your in, whenever you guys release this or whatever. I like to talk about the um, hunter and zoologist because some companies are like, oh, you've got to have this. And there's this one company in marketing, uh, MarTech, and the CEO was telling me, I, John, I, I've got to get rid of all my sellers. And I'm like, okay, like I'm having a conversation with CEO. I'm like, okay, but that's going to be a little rough. Why? And it's like, because they don't have the right experience. They need to have advertising agency experience and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, I already knew the answer to this. And I said, well, who's your number one rep? And they're like, well, Susie is. And I'm like, no, that's actually not who your number one rep is. You mean like by performance, right? And the guy's like, yeah. And I said, no, that's not who your number one rep is. Okay, well, it's uh, it's Sam. Nope. And it was amazing to me because it took this person three guesses to figure out who the number one rep was. And then I explained to them, actually, the number one rep was somebody that came from outside the industry, but they had learned the playbook or a playbook. And here's my answer on hunters and unicorns. They come together. The hunter has certain characteristics. All they need to know is where the bear sleeps, what the bear eats, how the bear moves. They don't need your help with get, grabbing a gun, loading it, and shooting that bear between the eyes. And this CEO is looking at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, hey, look, can't you teach the hunter about the bear and i introduced him to the concept of the zoologist and the problem was this guy was going to go hire a bunch of zoologists we know where the bear works or where the bear sleeps where the bear eats how the bear eats how the bear moves but they can't pull the trigger and that zoologist is never going to be a hunter and so my long-winded answer back to you simon is it's where the it's where the hunter and the zoologist come together well, what does the zoologist have? All the information about the bear, all the information about the marketplace, all the information about the products, all the information about what problems we solve, how specifically we solve them, how we solve them differently or better, and where we've done it before. You can go get a hunter, teach them that, 
or give them that playbook and you're shooting bear every day. So that's my answer to you of where these come together. Does that make sense? Uh, it has yeah. to be one of the best answers we've heard for that one. Okay, good. I, I was hoping it translated, but a, a, a hunter, a hunter without the zoology playbook is lost. They're starving. <laughs> Love it. Absolutely brilliant. First class. So, John, this is not yeah. So, John, this is normally when I come up with something really smart and something really insightful to kind of reflect on everything we've heard, right? But I think today, I think we've heard so much. You're just worn out, dude. I just wore you out, dude. <laughs> no, I, I don't even believe that I'm going to start to do any credit to the amount that we've actually taken today. But I, I do, I suppose, want to just hone in on one one of the things that you said, and I think it's really fundamental, and it's not necessarily framing the whole series but i think that moment in in time for you personally which was sitting in that airplane reflecting on what's important sitting down with that piece of paper and just working out what is it that stokes my fire what is it that's you know important to me and actually is what i'm doing important i think that's what i want to grab and take away and really highlight as the kind of finishing note for today but well done you know we've heard some amazing things and um i'm sure our listeners have taken lots from it and john it's been an absolute privilege and honor and uh, thank you so much for taking the time speaking with us my privilege and honor too as well i just have one ask Ollie, I want my picture next to John McMahon over there. Right on the he, yeah, but he's got to do a he's got to do an updated picture. That's from like a hundred years ago. So I'm give you mine. I'll give you mine from 15 years ago. But I want my picture next to John. John, I'm gonna put your picture in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys are keep doing what you're doing, man. I think I love it. I I love hearing the stories of. The next generation and friends of mine, everybody's got a story. My dad used to say, everybody's got a story. And I think you're doing a great job giving people a platform to share it. And I really, really enjoy it. Well done, guys. Oh, well, thank you so much, John. Really do appreciate your time, mate. Bye-bye.